Welcome to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill. I am president of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Our speaker today is Dr. Cliff Tennyson, who is Chief Clinical Officer at Helen Ross McNabb Center. He began his careers thinking that he would be, as were many of his forebears, a Baptist minister, but an experience in a hospital during his undergraduate days led him into medicine. He has occupied a number of administrative positions with Helen Ross McNabb, and several years ago, he changed his extracurricular focus from national public psychiatry policy and professional advocacy to local and state community mental health and public health improvements. He helped found the American Association of Community Psychiatrists and has numerous honors, including twice being recognized by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Please welcome Dr. Tennyson. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Martha. Here's the book. It's long, and in some ways it's sad. So get ready for that. But it's reality, and it's reality that we don't pay very much attention to, and so it's a useful thing uh, for us to pursue. So let me tell you about why I'm interested. I have been a public and community mental health person for 30 years here and some number of years before that, and have also been the psychiatric consultant to the Knox County Jails for 25 to 30 of those 30 years. In the first few years, it was informal, unpaid, on the side, uh, without any authority and and taking a whole lot of risk. (laughs) And then later on, we really did make an agreement with the Knox County Sheriff's Office to provide psychiatric care in the jails. And that's really a reactive thing. It's really after the point It's not preventing any kind of disturbance or tragedy or lack of treatment. It's very minimal treatment in the jails. You can't force treatment in the jails because they're not hospitals. Uh, We don't have the ability to to really step up and, and do the kind of work we would do elsewhere. But it is worthwhile, and we do help some people. But it can be tragic, and the reason I'm saying that is when you read the book, He goes into a lot of detail about going into the Miami jail and other jails as well and seeing what happens when mentally ill people are locked in a cage and what it does to mental illness and what it does to mental illness that includes the inability to know that you're ill. This is an important point of the whole book. There really is such a thing as anosognosia, which is a term that we borrow from neurology in psychiatry, which means that if if particular parts of of certain uh, neural circuits in the brain are damaged or impaired, even temporarily, uh, because it can clear in some people, the particular part of the brain that I'm talking about are parts that help us understand that there's something wrong. And when that part is damaged, of course, you can't do that. You can't recognize that you're ill. You can't recognize that there's anything wrong. And you think everybody else is, if I can use the word crazy, crazy. Um, uh, Because you feel perfectly logical and coherent uh, in what you're thinking. 
but uh, your functioning is, is grossly distorted and you're placing yourself and other people at risk, and we see that every single day. So when we're talking about what can we do to help people who need for healthcare professionals to have the ability to have some kind of leverage to help those people into treatment, even when they don't want it, without waiting until they're already going to harm themselves or someone else, which is what our laws tell us to do, then, then you need to read this book. If you have any interest in that whatsoever, this book will slap you in the face and wake you up to what's happening. So it's a difficult book to read. The author, Pete Early, actually came here uh, and gave a talk about, about this book after it was published about six or seven years ago as the keynote speaker for Volunteer Ministry Center's Torchbearer. Have I got that right? Okay. I used to be on their board, so I apologize. I can't even remember the name of the, of the luncheon. But uh, he was here, and it was pretty terrific uh, to listen to him. But even so, we still are grappling with what to do, what to do with mentally ill people not getting the treatment they need, number one, uh, having the three uh, most uh, uh, common reasons for being uh, incarcerated due to your mental illness, and those three things are untreated or undertreated mental illness, obviously. There's a relapse going on. Substance abuse, current substance abuse, and homelessness. Those three things are more associated with the inappropriate and preventable incarceration of the mentally ill than any other things that, that, that we know of. Those are the three most associated things. So he experienced this personally with his son, and I won't tell you that story. You have to read that story. That's pretty good. He intersperses each uh, group of chapters with a little mini-chapter about his experience with his son. And then he goes into this autobiographical, investigational journalism, um, which he was known for as a reporter at the Washington Post for many years when he published uh, frequently on criminal justice issues. Um, uh, in, the, in the intervening chapters, he, does, he tells you about the investigations that he's done. And most of it took place in Miami for some reason. He ended up going down there. He wanted to go to a large city with a large city jail who had a reputation for having lots and lots of mentally ill people in the jail at any given time. He's written two novels and eight other nonfiction books. Um, so let me give you my own introductory remarks. This is what I reached over, grabbed a pen, and jotted down after I closed the book the second time that I read it. I read it, like I said, five or six years ago. So, it's an infuriating read, an eye-opener for the uninitiated, and a timely embracing shove to action for those of us who have become comfortably numb to the misery and chaos of untreated mental illness that surrounds us every day, everywhere, all the time. His son's initial episode of a manic psychosis resulting in an arrest led him to discover the underside of our society's tragic abandonment of our neighbors who have brain and behavior disorders. 
So the harsh lessons that he learned and he tells us about in this book are really around what was never realized after the era of deinstitutionalization. And if you remember, or if you've read about it, or even remember this, back in the 50s, antipsychotic drugs were developed. Uh, people saw that people could actually be treated. There wasn't a lot of recovery, but there was a lot of treatment and management of the illness so that people could actually live in the community and didn't have to be locked up their whole lives somewhere. So for a number of reasons, political, economic, sociological, even people with good hearts who who were idealistic about this thing working out really well, decided to just deinstitutionalize all of the insane asylums in the first world, actually, not just in the United States. It happened everywhere. It happened in Europe and other Western countries that, that operated in, in much the way we did. So the never realized, quote, hospital without walls, unquote, where you had enough treatment in the community on an outpatient basis, supported housing, case management, monitoring, making sure people had primary care, making sure they had insurance, making sure they had other benefits, making sure they had medication, counseling, meaningful activity, a way to get there, and somebody to do it with, (laughs) never happened. (laughs) The only thing that's even close to the hospital without walls are assertive community treatment programs, ACT or ACT programs, all across the nation, And to our shame, Tennessee only has two in the entire state. Every metropolitan area ought to have an ACT program because they're limited. The one in Knoxville has only 100 patients max because it's so expensive to do. There's there's 15 to 20 full-time staff just for those 100 people. So you can imagine how expensive that is. But every year it saves the state millions, millions in other costs, um, including mostly including inpatient hospitalization costs uh, for the people who would be going in and out of hospital over and over. But it also saves costs that are not counted in those millions, which would be millions more in uh, fewer incarcerations, fewer alcohol and drug complications, fewer uh, preventable and inappropriate emergency room utilizations, fewer inpatient hospitalizations, as I said, uh, medically, though. Um, So all of these things happen less and less often with very good treatment, and that's just not happened. And I'm getting close to the end of my career. I'm going to work three more years. And, you know, I don't see that changing. (laughs) We have to look at what's going on. We have to see it clearly. We have to know what's happening to our friends and relatives and neighbors Um, before we'll have any interest, and and the book is a major step forward. So this hospital without walls never happened. Comprehensive, intensive outpatient treatment to take the place of insane asylums, to take the place of state psychiatric hospitals. So what happened after that? Decades of underfunding, decades of blindness to the fragmented and and short-sighted funding silos, okay, these places where there's money to spend to help people, but they're in separate silos that don't know about each other, 
don't monitor each other, don't keep up with each other. And so a hospitalization outfit might say, well, this is, this is good enough because we're not overspending, we're not hurting anybody, and we're not hurting the taxpayer with, with their money. But then what will happen is somebody else will take the burden on uh, some other part and another isolated funding silo. We don't have interagency collaboration, which I realize is an unnatural act, <laughs> but we had better get it together or we're going to continue to see awful things that crop up in the newspaper every once in a while. We'll continue to argue about what to do, and I'll talk again in a little bit more about the whole issue of mass killings and that sort of thing. So these short-sighted, fragmented funding silos coupled with highly restricted access to critical hospital admissions, and this is what Early goes into in the book in great detail. You can't get anybody into the hospital. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, One is our laws, which I could spend a whole hour on. In fact, we do. Mary Jane Davis and I, she used to be the attorney for Lakeshore, have created a presentation that we do here and there on involuntary commitment law, what it really is, what's the clinical impact, and what are the ethical implications for us as healthcare providers. Because the laws are archaic, useless, and completely inconsistent with clinical data and research data for health and safety, and yet they're the law of the land that keep people out of getting the help that they need. And then once you get in a hospital, dangerously brief treatments are still the way things are, and he talks about that in great detail in the book as well. Uh, The minute you get in a hospital, the doctors and the rest of the staff, the clinical managers, are under the gun from insurance to get that person out, discharge them, discharge them, discharge them. Psychiatric hospitalization is seen as any other part of medical care, which in a way is good, but in another way it doesn't take into account the fact that it takes time to stabilize. And it is expensive, and yet we haven't developed alternatives to inpatient care to do that. You could do it in residential settings that aren't as expensive as hospitals, but guess how many there are available for people in Knoxville who are acutely mentally ill, need that level of intensity of medical care to become stable, and yet you either have to go into a hospital at the high, high cost, and it's hard to get in, and they're going to chase you out as soon as they can because it's so expensive to everybody. Or you could do it in a medically supported residential setting. Guess how many medically supported residential settings there are for adults, for our friends, neighbors, and relatives in Knoxville? And if you're thinking zero, you're right. There are none. You can't do it. So we live in a culture where all of us have sort of become resigned to, oh, well, that's the insurance company and you have to leave real soon and you have to go ahead and go home and you have to have outpatient surgery and you have to this and that. And yeah. My father-in-law was an, was an old OBG and he was just flabbergasted that people could have a baby and go home the next day. You know, Well, you know, people have been having babies at home, so that's, it's not that surprising. But psychiatric illness is not like having a baby. It takes time for neurons to heal. Neurons are actually harmed by the illnesses that we have 
whether those illnesses were caused by trauma or other environmental influence or by drugs, something we chose to do mistakenly, and alcohol, or by genetic error that we've inherited in families. Any of those three ways that give us what we call a psychiatric disorder or a mental illness um, are actually harming neurons, brain cells. I mean, they're actually physically operating differently than they did before. And there's no question about it. And you can see it on the, the death of brain cells on CAT scans, and you can see the changes in brain function on positron emission tomography, PET brain scans. Uh, so we know that this is true now. A lot of things have changed. We really know things that we didn't used to. And we'll know a lot more in about 50 years. It'll be nice to have biological markers for these so people won't still have to face what I faced when I chose to go into psychiatry and ran into my friends who were surgery residents, and they said, show me the lesion, <laughs> which was their joke about I couldn't, I couldn't say, oh, well, here's the broken arm. You know, here's, the, here's the cut. Here's the appendicitis. Well, now you can. And now we know that these things are actually physical illnesses. We know more than that now, too. What's really cool, it has nothing to do with the book, is that we know that every interaction we have with the environment, especially other people, changes our brain physically. We actually change each other. Right now, we're changing each other. I have incorporated you through my vision and my hearing into my brain. It's understanding what's going on and reflecting on what it must mean and uh, making sense out of everybody here and uh, okay, so and these things are actually happening in the physical substance of the brain. How else could it be? I'm not imagining that I'm here. And even if I were imagining I was here, where would that imagination be taking place? It'd be taking place in the physical substance of my brain, certainly not in my elbow or somewhere else. So, so we've got to get to the point not only where we see that these things are real and they're really happening to people, and they're really robbing people of the ability to know that they're even ill. So now what do we do? How do we help people like that? We want to be fair. We value and treasure freedom and personal freedom and initiative and responsibility and autonomy. How do you force people to get treatment for something that they don't even believe they need treatment for? It's a really difficult thing to do, but we've got to think about it, and this book makes us look at that. Okay, what else did I write? I was upset, so I wrote, It appears that with regard to making decisions about involuntary care or any use of the higher levels of care, like hospitalization, we have abandoned any requirement for medical or clinical expertise to make those decisions. We have allowed all such decision-making to be done by state law no matter how archaic or useless. And insurance company policies, both private and public, that use the immediate economic bottom line as the final decision maker. Both law and our culture of health insurance payment are controlling access to mental health care in ways that are inappropriate, dangerous, costly, and inhumane 
Both law and insurance methodologies are in direct contradiction to clinical research data, and so they are shooting themselves in their actuarial feet. So that's my rant. Let me tell you about something else in introduction. Judge Stephen Leafman, who is featured prominently throughout the book, he's a judge in Miami that uh, early uh, ran into down there and started learning from and learning what this guy was trying to do, is a nationally known judicial reformer whose work in Miami was presented and praised at the 2012 annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association in Philadelphia. And I have an article from the APA newspaper here about him because you'll, you'll read about him a lot in the book. He said, in 1955, state hospitals housed 560,000 patients. And as a percentage of our national population, that would equal about 1.5 million people today. But back then, it was, it was a little over half a million people were in state psychiatric hospitals. Now there are fewer than 40,000 inpatient psychiatric beds in the United States. But 550,000, interesting number, today with mental illness are housed in jails and prisons with another 900,000 in community control. He said, we never deinstitutionalized we just transferred the responsibility from a hospital system to a prison system, and that's exactly right. So while there will never be a reinstitutionalization, I just can't imagine that ever happening, there has been a transinstitutionalization of the mentally ill in this country to our shame. Most people are released from jail without any provision for treatment and are likely to be rearrested soon after, and most of this recidivism happens in the first 25 days after release from jail. That's a national statistic that is consistent with what we see here. There are a number of things that can be done, and Leafman helped in Miami. He helped with CIT, crisis intervention, training for local police where they learn how to how to behave, how to approach a person with, with, a, with a mental illness out on the street when an arrest is being made. And these have saved lives right and left all over the country, CIT, for police officers. Uh, we have it now here in, in the KPD, and I think in the sheriff's department too. And what's interesting about it is police officers love it. <laughs> they love the actual training. They want the training. They get a thing to wear. They don't get any more money. <laughs> Uh, but they're on a team, and somebody from that team is always on every shift so that other officers can call and say, I think I have a 1087 out here. Can you come and help me with this? Which means a presumably mentally ill person who might be uh, an offender. Also available are things that Leafman helped in Miami, post-arrest diversion with peer support, housing, getting your benefits and screening tools used to be used, et cetera. And, and he also talks about interagency collaboration. Judge Leafman said, no one person, party, or institution caused this problem, and no single one will fix it. Everyone was doing his own job and didn't see the complete picture. We must develop a collaboration among all parties, public defenders, state's attorneys, law enforcement, families, consumers, 
and the psychiatric and behavioral health treatment community. So I wanted to give you an introduction to Pete Early and to the judge. Let me tell you what I think is the major theme from this book. At the beginning of every chapter, he quotes somebody else. So this is a quote from a New York Times editorial in 1981. This was 81. They already knew this. And I think this is the theme. Deinstitutionalization has become a cruel embarrassment, a reform gone terribly wrong, threatening not only the former mental inmates, but also the quality of life for all of us. So if you're ready for a downer, that, but it, that's something that will open your eyes and maybe make you angry enough or worried enough to want to do something about it, this is it. You might want to look at chapter 4 especially, where he gives historical and demographic data about how we got where we got, how we got in this situation and what it looks like. That will kind of give you an idea of what, what it is that you're going to be looking at in the rest of the your journey through the book and through his journey and trying to get help for his son. Let me read something to you by Joseph Bloom. Dr. Bloom wrote this in a book by the American College of Psychiatry called Past, Present, and Future, A 50-Year History. And here's what he says. Today, individuals incarcerated in correctional institutions represent the single largest group of institutionalized individuals for any reason in the country today. I didn't know that. There's no other group of, in, of institutionalized individuals larger than mentally ill people in jails and prisons in the United States. State psychiatric facilities have been reduced in size and scope to the point that they are now chiefly reserved for individuals referred by the criminal courts, along with a diminishing population of civilly committed patients and a vanishing population of voluntary patients. At the same time, the increase in the number of mentally ill individuals incarcerated in the nation's jails and prisons has led to the development of new service paradigms. Here's the hope. There is a ray of sunshine. New service paradigms ranging from diversion efforts at the community level and the police level to the development of mental health courts to divert appropriate individuals charged primarily with misdemeanors from being incarcerated in jails. Here's an article that I thought was interesting. It has direct attachment to this book. Guns, violence, and mental health. Did we close the state mental hospitals prematurely? And he doesn't say that we necessarily did, but we've got to ask ourselves that. And I'm not just talking about Lakeshore. I'm talking about all over the country, all over, everywhere, in every city. This is written by two doctors. One of them said, uh, I was seeing somebody in an emergency room that I judged to be more psychotic and more dangerous than, uh, and then he names two of the people who were responsible for mass killings recently, more dangerous than them, potentially. And and he says, not once was I able to prevail on the existing crisis intervention in the town that he lived in for the county to approve admission of any of those patients to excellent state mental hospital less than nine miles away. You can't get people in. Something wrong with that. If it's too expensive, 
we need to make something less expensive. It's possible. It's doable. It'll still cost money. And, and I wanted to say something about the whole mass violence thing and the association with mental illness. Politicians are discussing three things, according to this article, and it's pretty right. Number one, bans on the sale of certain types of guns, magazines, and ammunitions. And you know, it's probably not going to happen. But even if it did happen, it wouldn't necessarily stop very much of the mass killings. In fact, there are more homicides in the country all the time. The mass killings are a tiny little minuscule number of people. I mean, each one of those people breaks your heart. And if it was my son, it would be the most important thing in the world. But I'm telling you, statistically, it's a tiny number of people that are hurt or killed by these mass shootings. Uh, Gun-related deaths, gun-related homicides, in general, way outstrip that. And guess what? Even if we did ban or limit or restrict or have something to do with guns, it probably wouldn't impact the homicide rate very much, but it would impact the suicide rate. And the reason that's important is because almost every mass killing is also a suicide. And we know how to treat suicides. We know how to prevent suicides. We know how to stop them. We know what to do. We know how to recognize it. If we had more ability to catch people before it gets to that point, we could, we could help prevent the suicide, which might also help prevent the multiple killings. But that's beside the point. So, number one, they're doing something about guns. Number two, politicians are focusing on expanding background checks for certain types of gun sales. Okay, we can think about that. Huge confidentiality breaches and risks and, and would probably go against state law in Tennessee and, and other things. But we, would, you know, you can, we can look at that. Actually, there is a law now that was just passed this year that I have a question in to the Department of Mental Health to help clarify for us because I don't get it. And apparently it is a law. I shouldn't be gossiping like this because I don't really know for a fact, but it's scary. And that is that if any mental health professional sees someone who threatens to harm another person, it's almost like the duty to warn law, the Tarasoff law, for those of you that are familiar with that. But instead of giving you certain options to do, it says you must report them to local law enforcement to be added to a list of people nationwide that, or statewide or something that, that would go into the background checks before they can buy a gun. Well, maybe that's okay, but wow, you know, I don't want to do something that makes me lose my license or that harms a person by revealing the fact that they, or by everybody knowing that if I go somewhere to try to get some help, my name's going to be spread all over these things. And so they don't come in, and they'll resist it. So there's a lot of things to think about here with the second one. And the third one is other ways of infringing on the basic relationship between healthcare providers and patients by relaxing the privacy of mental health records with respect to interested government agencies. These are mostly desperate efforts to find a patch to replace a mental health system that we have dismantled. Most importantly, the system of state mental hospitals. And then they go into uh, a history of how we got there, pretty much the same way that Pete Early does in his book. 
What he recommends at the end is revitalizing the state mental hospital system to provide safety evaluation and treatment before violence has occurred. He doesn't say rebuild and reinstitutionalize everybody and lock everybody back up again in insane asylums and warehouse them and mistreat them and abuse them, which is why we're here today, is because we're paying for the sins of our fathers. (laughs) There was no due process. You could just bring crazy Uncle Joe in and tell the hospital superintendent, he's got to live here, we can't take it anymore, and he'd be there the rest of his life. (laughs) But there are ways to do it. There's always a middle way. There's always a middle way between complete totalitarianism and complete chaos. And we need to look for that. And I'll tell you what some of those middle ways are. He also says lower the threshold for legal commitment. That's one of the middle ways. There's something called assisted outpatient treatment that if I have time, I'll talk to you about. And third, develop a transitional system of partial hospitalization, and that would be step up and step down ways to avoid the high cost of hospitalization, which is really behind the libertarian laws that we have that keep us from being able to involuntarily commit commit people uh, when they need it. Okay, next. Early writes about diversion techniques and and says that they're good, but he kind of calls them necessary reactions. But what would really help would be to completely revamp the involuntary commitment laws. And that's something that you learn from this book. Even if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, you read this book and you'll know. It's like a, it's like a semester of coursework there in what's going on in this country. Rewriting involuntary commitment laws nationwide would be closer to actual repair of the damage that's been done. And guess what? We're looking at both of these avenues in Knoxville right now. We already have the CIT, the police training. We're looking at diversion techniques of various kinds. One we already have, which is called drug court. Another we don't have mental health court. Another one that's been tossed around since 2006. It's called a safety center. The real name for it was going to be called a diversion reception center a DRC, and they use the word reception, meaning that anybody can walk in, especially police at their own discretion, can decide that a nonviolent, misdemeanant, low-level offender, if they appear to be mentally ill or substance abusing, can be brought to a reception center and received <laughs> without a lot of booking and falderall and going to court and all this kind of stuff. So it was really supposed to be called a DRC, a diversion from jail, and a reception center. And we've been calling it a safety center. I don't know how it got that moniker, but it does. So that would be a diversion, and it's pretty cool. There's a lot of different ways that that would do some good things. And there's also something going on in Knoxville called a pilot project for the assisted outpatient treatment way of involuntary commitment. And I'll tell you about that a little bit more in a minute. First, I want to read something to you from the book. This is a chapter called Solutions. My job as a journalist is to go places where others can't and come back and tell what I saw. I'm a fact gatherer, and I've always been content to let the pundits on Sunday TV talk shows argue about solutions to society's problems, but I realized when I returned from Miami that I could not be dispassionate 
about what I had seen. Every police department in America should implement CIT training, crisis intervention team training. It saves money and, more important, lives. Most police forces already have specialty units, such as hostage rescue teams or SWAT teams or bomb squads, but they also need officers who have been taught how to deal with the mentally ill. The killing of a Miami-Dade County police officer of a mentally ill man who was walking home from his cousin's house and had not been disturbing anyone should alarm us all. He told that story earlier in the book. It was a preventable tragedy. Uh, but getting police departments to accept CIT training can be difficult. No one thinks they need CIT officers until either an officer or a mentally ill person ends up dead, said Memphis Lieutenant Sam Cochran. That's how it always happens. That's how it always works. So I guess we can wait until somebody else gets killed, and then we can start trying to get in the paper and get on TV again about this. But we do have CIT training now in this town. So that's a check. You can put a check by that one. Early then says, I was lucky that my son had not been shot by the Fairfax County Police Department when he was arrested. Its officers sent a dog into an unoccupied house to subdue him. But even after it locked its teeth into Mike's arm, Mike is his son, and dragged him to the floor, my son had struggled in his deluded mind, Mike believed the police had come to murder him. It had taken five officers to wrestle him down. Thankfully, they did it without using their nightsticks or a handgun. At this writing, I've now been told that the Fairfax County Police Department is considering implementing the CIT training. I hope it does so quickly. CIT changes attitudes, and then he goes into more detail about that. The reason that's important is seeing the mentally ill differently is something that not only the police, but also prosecutors, judges, and the public need to do. It has been confirmed that people with severe depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, have imbalances, disorders in their brain that distort their mood and impair their thoughts. They need treatment. They do not belong in jails. And then he goes on. As this book documents, jails and prisons are simply not safe or humane places for the mentally ill. And he gives some more examples that he's already talked about. Our jails and prisons have become our nation's new asylums because there is nowhere else for the mentally ill to go. The reason is deinstitutionalization. What is missing in our system today are modern, long-term treatment facilities Medically supported residential is what I call them. Where the chronically mentally ill can receive good medical attention and, if necessary, can live safely until they can be moved into less restrictive facilities. Look at how people are being dealt with today. They're locked in jails and sent to prisons. They're tucked away in so-called assisted living facilities where, by and large, they receive no treatment, often are abused and live in squalor. Many though, are abandoned on the streets. For them, deinstitutionalization was a cruel hoax, and the wholesale closing of state hospitals was abandonment, not freedom. In addition to rethinking our attitudes about the need for state hospitals, we should also reexamine commitment laws. Obviously, the civil rights of the mentally ill need to be guarded, and the civil rights of people who might be petitioned for commitment who are not mentally ill because of some kind of 
meanness. <laughs> but, but instead of making it so difficult just by definition of who can be admitted against their will, we need to lower that threshold a bit and put the onus on the petitioner. And that's what assisted outpatient treatment called AOT does. It lets more people petition Anybody that's worried, anybody that knows the person, any family member uh, can petition. But if you submit a fraudulent petition, there are severe criminal penalties for doing so. So I like that. You don't say people have to be imminently dangerous. They have to have a gun in their mouth before you can put them in the hospital. What you say is we can take the petition and put them in front of a health care provider to do a medical clinical assessment to see if they need to be hospitalized and let it be more clinical instead of legal and put the burden of honesty and does this person really need to have their civil rights taken away from them and be locked in a place where they don't want to be. It's a horrible thing to do to somebody, really. But it takes the onus off of uh, having to just obey legal definition and puts it on the petitioner, and I like that. That's probably a good idea. So he says, obviously, the civil rights of the mentally ill need to be guarded, but we've created a system that is heavily biased against any intervention when it's needed and treatment, even if it's life-saving. Most commitment laws were passed 30 years ago in reaction to lax commitment standards, as I said. We're paying for the sins of our mothers and fathers and and the ghastly conditions in the old state-run hospitals. But in reacting to those wrongs, We've turned commitment hearings into adversarial confrontations where the family members of people with mental disorders and the doctors who want to help them are assumed to be vicious co-conspirators intent on maliciously imprisoning a confused mark, freeing a delusional defendant, and they're calling him a defendant, who has a long history of psychological problems, does neither the patient nor the public any lasting good. Instead, it prolongs that person's misery and puts society at risk. What makes this especially unfortunate is that 80% of the mentally ill can be helped by antipsychotic medication, not cured, helped. Yet civil rights laws are used every day to prevent these people from getting help. Doctors, judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys involved in the commitment process know this to be true, yet we insist no one be compelled to take antipsychotic medications until they become so deranged that they are in imminent danger and a judge has to intervene to save his life. How ridiculous is this? We don't do that with any other disorder of the body. If we really believed that forced treatment was an injustice and that forced medication was cruel, then why would we allow a judge to impose it as a last resort to save a precious life? <laughs> Something's wrong with this. The commitment process needs to be retooled so doctors and the patient's loved ones can be brought back into the decision-making process instead of being immediately viewed with suspicion. The courts should find a way to help people who can't think for themselves because of their brain disorders rather than simply turn them loose to die with their rights on. Okay, it's a good book. I believe there are huge systemic errors that stand in the way of our understanding what to do about the acute exacerbation of mental illnesses. 
But we have to ask ourselves, what kinds of errors, what kinds of fear-induced errors of thinking lead to the stigma of mental illness that both peripheralizes people so that you can avoid them and belittles the significance of their suffering? Well, I think there are seven errors. <laughs> and I'd love to talk about them, but it'll take another hour. So I'll just mention them and kind of whet your appetite, and maybe we can have another talk together sometime. The first one is the error of totalitarianism or authoritarian paternalistic decision-making. That's a major error. The second error is just the opposite on the complete other end, the error of libertarian or anarchic and chaotic preferences, not forcing anybody to do anything, letting them die with their rights on. The third is the error of one-size-fits-all, overlooking individualism and how we're different. We each exhibit where we are on the continuum of health to dysfunction differently. The fourth is depending on tradition in any form. That's the way we've always done it. So that's why we're going to do it now. Well, guess what? Nothing is the way we've always done it. (laughs) It depends on what you mean by we. The fifth is the error of not seeing and knowing clearly. That's pretty obvious that we're not knowing clearly. We, we can't look at our own society, our own culture, our own community and say, this is what it is. This is what it is like. It's very difficult for us to do because we see everything through a certain prism in our own mind, in our own eyes. It's like institutional racism. You say, well, I'm not a racist. But still behave and participate in in things that were based on racism 200, 300, 400 years ago. It's become institutionalized. So is the stigma against mental illness, caring for the people who are sick and taking it seriously. And the sixth error is the error of not attending mindfully. And what I mean by mindfulness is it's not just awareness. Mindfulness is focused. It has a center and it has a periphery. We're not mindful of this whole issue. We don't look at it. We don't see it. We don't see the point. And seventh is the error of identifying oneself with one's thought and mood states. Let me read something to you by black feminist writer, Bell Hooks. Have you ever read any of her books, Bell Hooks? She wrote, Ain't I a Woman, Black Woman and Feminism, Talking Back, Thinking Feminist, Thinking Black, Breaking Bread, Insurgent Black Intellectual Life, Black Looks, Writing Beyond Race, Living Theory and Practice. Let me read what she says about this. The error of identifying oneself with one's thoughts and emotions. My thoughts are me. My emotions are me. I am more than my pain, she says. In the great Holocaust literature, particularly the Nazi Holocaust literature, people say, all around me there was death and evil and slaughter of innocence, but I had to keep some sense of transcendent world that proclaims that we're more than this evil despite its power. When I'm genuinely victimized by racism in my daily life, I want to be able to name it to name that it hurts me, to say that I'm victimized by it, but I don't want to see it as all that I am. And it's the same with mental illness. When mentally ill people 
have anosognosia. They don't know they're ill. And the libertarian says, well, they don't want to be in the hospital, so don't force them to go in. The libertarian is doing libertarian paternalism. Can that even be a thing? But it's true. Libertarian, you know, hands off, forcing you to do what I want you to do. Hands off. I'm forcing you to be hands off. (laughs) The reason I call it libertarian paternalism is because that's not that person who they really are. That's an illness. It will go away eventually. Everything rises and falls. Do we want to wait for it to go away and wait what he might do to himself and his family and his career and his relationships and his neighbors and himself and others when he can't think right? Or do we want to step in? It's tough. But do we want to do that? And I think we do. So I appreciate Belle and what she had to add to this. Here is a poem. This is by a psychiatrist. It's called Favorite Patient. Before I knew much psychiatry, I met his angry stare in the ER, a homeless man with a three-day beard, shivering in a stained flannel shirt. He could hear a tarantula scratch inside my white coat pocket, and he knew I was the CIA agent who broadcast his thoughts on the radio. I don't know how I convinced him to swallow a dose of stelazine or the way a few molecules changed him from a man I feared might strangle me to a guy I could imagine dating my sister. And in time, he became my favorite patient, although he never believed his diagnosis or the need to take medication. But he always asked for me in the ER. He joked about the way I still bugged him. He died suddenly last week in a shelter, no chance to say goodbye, a man who couldn't sense how hard he was falling no matter how often he hit the ground. Richard Berlin, it's in his book of poetry called Secret Wounds, BKMK Press, 2010. Okay, that's my rant and, and my exposure to this book, which I thought was very good, and we all ought to take advantage of it. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.